This week brings us in our perspective series to Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her perspective on the cross. That passage that we just read from Luke chapter 2 is one that you're more likely to hear just after Christmas rather than a few weeks before Easter. It's a story that took place 40 days after the birth of Jesus. That's when a Jewish woman, according to custom, would have gone through the rite of purification following the birth of a son, 40 days after the birth. It was not required in the law that she go to the temple to carry out that rite, but Luke indicates that that is precisely where this story takes place, the Jerusalem temple. He says that they went to the temple in order to present the baby Jesus to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. That practice of presenting the firstborn male to the Lord was not a part of the purification ritual. It was a separate ritual. It seems that there were two different rituals that were both being carried out in this one story from Luke, the purification of the mother following the birth and the redemption of the firstborn male. The redemption of the firstborn male goes all the way back to the Torah, the books of Moses, the law that God delivered to his people after freeing them from slavery in Egypt. In gratitude for what God had done, in recognition for who God is, the Lord had commanded that the firstborn male, both of people and of animals, was to be given over to God. In the case of an animal, that giving over to God meant sacrifice. The firstborn male was sacrificed on the altar as an offering to God. In some cases, one animal could be substituted for another. Specifically, Exodus 13.13 says, Every firstborn donkey you shall redeem with a sheep. A donkey was an expensive animal. Sacrificing a donkey would be a huge financial burden. So instead, God allowed the firstborn donkey to be redeemed. That means to be bought back with a sheep. Likewise, with a human, God rejected human sacrifice. God did not expect parents to kill their firstborn son. But still, it was necessary to acknowledge that the firstborn belongs to God. The same verse that says, you shall redeem a donkey with a sheep, goes on, every firstborn male among your children, you shall redeem. When Luke says that the Holy Family brought the baby Jesus to the temple to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord, that is the law to which he is referring, the redemption of the firstborn son. But here's the interesting thing about how Luke tells this story. He doesn't say anything about Mary and Joseph paying the redemption price. In verse 34, Luke does talk about them offering a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That sacrifice had nothing to do with the redemption price. That was the sacrifice required for the purification of the mother. Exodus doesn't specify what the redemption price was for a firstborn son. That's unlike just about every other offering, all of which are very specific in the law, but this one is left ambiguous. Now with the purification ritual, it's very specific. Leviticus 12.6 states clearly that she must bring a lamb in its first year and a pigeon or turtle dove. And verse 8 says, if she cannot afford a sheep, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. 
The fact that that is the offering that was brought by Mary and Joseph shows two things. One, it shows that they were a poor family. If they were people of means, they would have brought a lamb. Two, it shows that that offering was for Mary's purification, not for Jesus' redemption. Here's the point. According to Luke's telling of this story, and Luke's the only one of the four Gospels who tells this story, so it's all that we have to go on. According to this story, Mary and Joseph never redeemed Jesus. They never bought him back from God. Quite the contrary, they took him up to the temple and presented him to the Lord in a manner that showed that he belonged entirely to God. They would raise him, they would act as his parents, but they acknowledged in that act of dedication at the temple that he was not theirs, he was God's. Still, it couldn't have been easy. They were raising Jesus as if he were theirs, just like any other parent and child. Even knowing how special he was, even knowing that he was God's son, that he was destined for something amazing, I would imagine that as Jesus was growing up, they probably looked at him the way that any parent looks at their child, with a sense of wonder and awe, not because he's destined for great things, but because he's your child and he's precious to you. Not because the world will see him stand out differently from all other people, but because to you as his parent, he does stand out as you hold him and rock him and feed him and clothe him and watch him take his first steps and hear him speak his first words. To you, he is special and wonderful because he is yours. He wasn't theirs, though. He wasn't theirs, and they knew that. Mary knew that from before he was born. When the angel Gabriel told her that she would conceive and bear a son, he spoke such amazing things to her about who this child would be. He will be called great, and he will be called son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I mean, every parent thinks their child is special, but... To be told that by an angel of the Lord before the child is even conceived? Mary asked how this could be since she was still a virgin. And the angel told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. From that moment on, before Jesus was even conceived, Mary knew that he was set apart for God, that she, as his mother, had no claim over who he would become or what he would do. All of that was entirely up to God, and she would have to leave it entirely up to God. She knew that Jesus wasn't hers. And yet, he was. Mary was the one who suffered the contractions and the pain of childbirth. Mary held him to her breast to nurse him as a baby. When he cried through the night, Mary and Joseph were the ones who stayed up to calm him. When he learned to walk and stumbled, they were the ones who bandaged his wounds. They were the ones who taught him to speak, taught him to read. They were the ones who taught him the words of scripture. He who is the word made flesh. 
They were the ones who taught him the ways of life, he who is the way and the life. Yes, he was special, and they knew it, but still, to them, he was their child. That dichotomy between being the son of God and being the son of Mary and Joseph is put on display in in the story that Luke tells when Jesus was 12 years old going up to the temple. You remember the story how the Holy Family had gone to Jerusalem and they were on their way home and after three days of travel, Mary and Joseph realized that Jesus wasn't with them and how they went back to Jerusalem to search for him and how they finally found him in the temple conversing with the religious leaders and holding his own. What was it that Mary said? Child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. And how, how did 12-year-old Jesus respond? Why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Yes, Yes, they knew that he did not belong to them. They knew that he was God's, but that wasn't always on the forefront of their minds. What was on the forefront of their minds was, this is our boy. We have to watch out for him. We have to protect him. He's our responsibility. More than that, he's our joy. He's our blessing. While Jesus was about doing his father's business, Mary and Joseph were thinking about the same things that every parent thinks about. Is he safe? Is he happy? Is he developing normally? Is he getting along well with his friends? Is he being prepared for his future? Every parent wants their child to be well prepared for their future. But what does that mean? Being well acclimated to society? Being able to hold down a good job? Maintain a good home? Support a large family? That was not what was in Jesus' future. And to a certain extent, Mary knew that from the beginning. What was the future that Jesus was being prepared for? And how might Mary herself need to be prepared? Simeon's words in our reading from Luke 2 take a step toward answering those questions. First, he praised God because he recognized the baby Jesus to be the one he had been waiting for all his long life. Master, Simeon prayed to God, now you are dismissing your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. When Simeon said this, Luke tells us the child's father and mother were amazed at what had been said about him. It's reminiscent of what was said on the night that Jesus was born. When shepherds appeared at the manger, making known to Mary and Joseph what had been told them by the angels, Luke says, Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. Mary was overwhelmed and amazed that her son was destined for such wonderful, amazing things, that her son would be the long-awaited Messiah, that her son was the very son of God. She held these words dear. She held this knowledge close to her heart. She treasured this testimony and carried it with her. At first, the words of Simeon had that same effect. 
He declared the greatness of the child, that he was indeed the savior that their people had been waiting for for centuries. And once again, Mary and Joseph were rendered speechless at this wondrous declaration. But then the passage goes on. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed, so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Good thing he blessed them before delivering that word. They're going to need a blessing with a prophecy like that. Previously, Simeon had been speaking to both Mary and Joseph. Both Mary and Joseph were amazed at his words. But this last part, this last part, he said only to Mary. Probably because Joseph would die before having to see Jesus suffer the way that he did. The Gospels don't tell us when Joseph died, but the story of Jesus as a 12-year-old at the temple is the last time that Joseph appears in the story. When Jesus began his public ministry as an adult, it seems that Joseph had already passed on. But Mary was still around. Mary was around for the three years that Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons and, and stirring up all kinds of trouble. And Mary was there at the end when it all came to a head. How tormented she must have been watching it all go down. On the one hand, she knew who Jesus was, that he wasn't just her son, but God's son. She knew what he had to do, that, that he was a savior, and that this was all for a purpose. But on the other hand, this was her son. This is the baby she had given birth to, the boy that she had raised and protected and doted over and loved. Even before Jesus went to the cross, when he was still going about teaching and, and healing, you can hear that Mary had some inner turmoil going on. In Matthew chapter 12, there's a passage where Jesus had just performed some healings and he was in the middle of teaching the crowds and someone interrupted him and said, look, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The Bible doesn't tell us why Mary and her other sons were there, what they wanted to speak to Jesus about that day. Most scholars believe that they were there to talk some sense into Jesus and bring him home. The Bible tells us that Jesus' literal brothers did not believe in him until after the resurrection. At this point in the story, they were probably a little embarrassed by him. If not embarrassed, certainly concerned. But even if that's why Jesus' brothers were there, because they didn't believe in him, they wanted to take him home, why was Mary there? What did she want? There's no reason to think that she doubted Jesus. The Bible never even hints at her disbelief. She knew who Jesus was. The words of the shepherds were still ringing in her ears all those years later. But the words of Simeon were still ringing in her ears, too. The fact that Jesus would be opposed. The fact that he would face rejection and pain. The fact that because of his suffering, she would suffer, too. 
Perhaps even the thought of it was already causing her own soul to be pierced. I'm not suggesting that Mary was intentionally trying to divert Jesus from carrying out his mission, but I do think that in that moment, her mother's instincts were kicking in. I need to protect my son. His brothers want to bring him home? Good, I'll go along too. That's where he'll be safe. That's where he belongs. But that's not where he belonged. That's not where he belonged. And deep down, Mary knew it. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. With that, Mary was reminded of who Jesus truly belonged to, that he was not hers, but God's. But it still had to hurt to know that her son would suffer and there was nothing she could do to prevent it, to know that he had to suffer and only through that suffering would he be the Savior. Mary stood at the foot of the cross with the other women, with John. Mary watched helplessly as the child she had loved since before he was born hung on a cross in the most excruciating pain imaginable. John 19, 26 to 27, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing beside her, he said to his mother, woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Much has been made of the fact that Jesus refers to his mother as woman. Some translations try to soften it by saying dear woman, but that's what he called her, woman. Not mother, not mommy, not mom, not ma, woman. Mary only appears in two scenes in the Gospel of John, here at the cross and at the wedding at Cana, all the way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In both stories, Jesus calls her woman, At the wedding at Cana, when Mary had come to Jesus to tell him that the wine had run out, Jesus responded by saying, what's that have to do with me? And then he said, my time has not yet come. What did he mean by that? My time has not yet come. He meant this, what we see in John 19, the cross. Jesus had resisted back in chapter 2 because he felt like Mary was pressing him to reveal his glory, and it wasn't time to reveal his glory. His glory would be revealed when he was lifted up on the cross. But even so, even so, Mary had told the others at Cana that day, do whatever he says. Even though he didn't seem sympathetic to her request, Mary showed that she trusted her son implicitly, that whatever he commanded was right. Do whatever he says. Now, at the cross, that implicit trust is absolutely essential. How else, how else could she possibly stand there and watch her son go through this torment and pain unless she believed implicitly down to her very core that he was who she had been told he was from the beginning, 
that he is the Savior, that he is God, that he knows what he's doing, that his suffering is not only necessary, but it is God's will, and it is for the salvation of the whole world. Mary didn't have to suffer the physical pain that Jesus went through, the flogging, the nails, the suffocation. But Mary suffered. Mary suffered right along with her son. She suffered more deeply than any of his followers possibly could. They had been with him for three years. She had given birth to the boy. When Jesus hung on the cross, her heart hung there with him. When a soldier pierced his side, a sword pierced her own soul. Mary suffered as deeply as any parent has ever suffered for her child. But she suffered in faith. She suffered in faith. And she was not undone by her grief because she knew. She knew even then as her son was dying on the cross, she knew he is the Savior. She knew this was not senseless. She knew that God was still in control. And she had the same resolve right there that she had had all the way back at the wedding in Cana to believe her son. Do whatever he says. So when he pointed her to John and said, this is your son, she did what he said. Without hesitation, without doubt, from that hour, John tells us, she went into his home. Because the family of Jesus are those who do what the Father says. Jesus had other brothers. Mary had other sons. It would have been natural for her to go home with James, the next oldest son in line. For James to watch over her and provide for her. But James was not yet a believer. James would not believe until the risen Jesus appeared to him. John believed at the cross. Mary believed at the cross. That made them family. When I think of Mary standing at the cross watching her son die, it brings to mind the story of Abraham and Isaac from the Old Testament Abraham was over a hundred years old, Isaac, the son that God had promised him. But then God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Obediently, Abraham went off with his son Isaac to offer the sacrifice that God demanded. On the way there, Isaac asked his father, where's the animal for the sacrifice? Abraham answered, God will provide. Abraham bound his son, placed him on the altar, but before he could kill him, God stopped him and provided a ram in his place. Because of his faithfulness, God allowed Abraham to redeem Isaac, to buy him back with the ram. God asked Mary to do basically the same thing that he asked Abraham to do, to sacrifice her son. Except in Mary's case, In Mary's case, 
when it came time for the sacrifice to be made, no substitute was given. Mary had to watch as the sacrifice was carried out. But in that sacrifice, in that sacrifice, Jesus became the one who would redeem all humankind. Jesus became the ram in the thicket given by God to buy back all who would be saved. Mary and Joseph did not make a sacrifice to redeem Jesus because Jesus himself is the sacrifice that redeems us. And when Jesus gave John and Mary to each other, he showed that God did provide. He didn't provide a ram to save her son, but in that sacrifice, he provided her with a son. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, Mary would gain a whole new family that would expand throughout the entire world and last throughout the centuries. And still today, Still today, we who believe in Christ, we who follow the word of the Father, we too are members of his family and hers. Thanks be to God.